History is about civilizations that have come and gone. It's about the development of humankind, and history is about the human stories worth telling. This is History for the Curious with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch. Good morning. I am Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch talking to you live from the JLE, the Jewish Learning Exchange in London. And this next hour is about history, history for the curious, which forms part of the weekly podcast that I put out called History for the Curious, available on all media streaming platforms. And we discuss various topics of interest to Jewish history and often bringing in general history as well. And this week, um, although the hot topic in the UK at the moment is obviously politics and prime ministers, uh, which uh, seems to be something that changes with the weather, uh, given that this will be our third prime minister in as many months, and uh, we are uh, unsure as to where it will take the country. Uh, but in many ways, the Jews do not have a particular vested interest in uh, making waves over what's happening. So we are allowing things to unfold as they do. I guess it will be another half century or century from now till we'll be able to talk about uh, what was really going on and uh, how people really felt on the matter. Um, although we have had uh, somebody who comes from the South African shores pen an article um, in the Times yesterday, uh, Sir Mick Davis um, writing about the fact that he felt it would be a mistake for Boris Johnson to resume the premiership or even, in in effect, um, enter the race for it. Uh, but uh, outside of that, we will go back further into time, uh, dealing, as I mentioned, with censorship. And over the centuries, the church's attitude towards Jewish writings changed. Um, initially, um, they were viewed when we were in the pre-printing era as uh, not much of a threat, except when they were being used in public, uh, which was quite unusual. And therefore, in the main, although there was some control over what Jews could and could not write at certain periods in time, generally speaking, uh, the Jews were able to write what they wanted. Uh, but the audience that they reached with handwritten manuscripts was limited. There were tragic exceptions, uh, such as the uh, burning of 24 wagon loads of Talmud in Paris in 1242 in the public square near the town hall, um, and that left the country bereft of any copies of the Talmud, which uh, precipitated, in fact, an aliyah to the land of Israel uh, by 300 sages over the next few decades um, who felt themselves constrained and felt it impossible to learn and teach Torah in the kingdom of France. 
um, and they therefore um, populated the land of Israel, generally on the on the west coast. Um, but in the main, uh, the church did leave uh, the uh, Jewish uh, people um, to their own endeavours. We will come back and deal with what happened when censorship became an issue with the age of printing. And we're now going to go into an ad break. This is History for the Curious with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch. And we are back on History for the Curious, a show which discusses Jewish history um, and is linked to the podcast series History for the Curious. And we were talking about censorship, church censorship as imposed on the Jewish communities, particularly in Christian Europe during the last thousand years. When printing came into being, and particularly from the 1500s onwards, um, the church felt under attack by the plethora of books now available to the Jews, and they were also having to contend with their own internal issues. There was the attacks by Martin Luther on the Pope, on the papacy, and the church issued a counter-reformation which sought to regain ground that they were rapidly losing to emerging branches of Christianity. And one of the ways that they felt they could reassert control is by being in control of the printed word. And the um, main victim of this was not actually rival Christian factions, but the Jews. Uh, There was an index of uh, forbidden printed material, which uh, printing houses were not allowed to produce because of church censorship. But beyond that, uh, there were works which, although they were given an allowance, um, still had to have pages or passages censored, uh, removed or inked over. And that meant that um, every work, every Jewish work to be printed had to be submitted to a church censor in advance. Uh, Generally, uh, not always, but generally, these censors were apostate Jews and therefore they were able to read Hebrew in its vernacular um, and were somewhat knowledgeable as to the material that they were looking at. And unfortunately, um, many books fell prey to it. Um, To this day, you can still come across in libraries and in museums books, Jewish books, which were censored centuries ago. Sometimes the uh, black pen of the censor has now faded over time and we are able to discern underneath it the original Um, And occasionally the censor would make an error, would make a mistake, misunderstanding a word, misreading a word, but it would also be subject to censorship and to uh, um, exorcism and to being um, part of the general control that the church held over Jewish 
printing and Jewish writings. Now, um, at the beginning of the 18th century um, in Prague, uh, there were particular intrusions by the church and therefore by the state as well um, into what was allowed, into what the Jews could and could not produce. Um, and this came to the fore during the rabbinate of Rabbi David Oppenheim. He is a rabbi whose whole life is identified with books, uh, not just learning them, which I guess is to be expected, but on many varied and unusual levels. He had an enormous personal library, both of acquired books and of his own writings and responsa. And secondly, um, he wrote uh, a number of letters for which he stood accused of treason precisely by those forces who wished to censor Jewish books. And in uh, many ways, what happened to him and the fate of his library mirrors in a small way what was happening on a much larger scale across Europe and it uh, indicates that there were a number of works that were lost to us as a result. It is quite well known that there are actually two sets of Talmud. There is the Babylonian Talmud, which is the one we generally refer to when we talk about the Talmud, and then there is the Jerusalem Talmud, the Yerushalmi. Um, of the Jerusalem Talmud, we are missing two-thirds. However, in the times of Maimonides, meaning in the 12th century, he had access to it. It was still around. It is as a result of uh, burnings and confiscations and censorship that we nowadays no longer have the entire set of Jerusalem Talmud, because um, at some stage or in stages, it was removed from uh, Jewish ownership and perhaps exists somewhere in a uh, monastery, um, perhaps even uh, within the bowels of the Vatican. But it is not one of those that have been published. Um, and therefore, we are bereft of one third of that Talmud to this very day. And as mentioned, Rabbi David Oppenheim's library is a microcosm of all of that. He arrives in Prague in 1702. Um, and interestingly, we actually have the letter of appointment to the rabbinate uh, from the summer months of 1702. And he will be there for the next 34 years until his death in 1736. He actually was a, um, a man of means, which was facilitated by the wealth of his uncle, Samuel Oppenheim, who was a court banker and a military supplier to the emperor in Vienna. And uh, in fact, his uncle was allowed to remain in Vienna after all the Jews had been expelled in 1670. And therefore, Rabbi Oppenheimer, because he was a man of means, was able to accumulate a very large Hebrew library. 
we will come back and tell you more in a moment. This is History for the Curious with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch. Are you customer and detail-oriented, computer literate, creative, and great at networking? This could be your opportunity to become part of the High FM sales team. High FM is looking for sales representatives, and if you have the skills and passion to build customer relationships, you can email Kathy at highfm.com. So we are back at History for the Curious, which is linked to the podcast series History for the Curious. And we have been speaking about Rabdovid Oppenheim and his library. Um, he managed to accumulate, and this is in the very early 1700s, somewhere between four and a half thousand to five thousand printed books and a thousand manuscripts. They ranged from works on Jewish law and halacha to works of science, philosophy, numerous editions of the Tanakh, the biblical canon, and the Talmud, and he even commissioned books and svarim to be printed. Um, in fact, there is an 18th century Frankfurt edition of the Babylonian Talmud of the Shas printed on parchment, which we have as a result of his investment. Um, his collection also contains hundreds of Yiddish works, which was the reading material of Europe's average Jew, the um, non-rabbinically inclined Jew, the average man and woman in the street, um, their language, the language which they spoke amongst themselves was Yiddish, although this ranged from Western European Yiddish to Eastern European Yiddish through Central European Yiddish. They were not all one and the same. They were sort of dialects because it was a language created initially orally and only developed its rules of grammar and writing much later. Um, and these Yiddish works contained everything from songs uh, to stories uh, to guides of Jewish law. And in many cases, in fact, today, his collection is now the sole surviving copy. But the interesting thing is that when he came to Prague in 1702, he did not bring his library with him. He left it in the house of his father-in-law because the church censor was particularly intrusive in those days in Bohemia, and they had concerns about the library's contents. Some of the concerns were almost uh, crazy. Um, they um, argued that some of these books came from Turkey, which was uh, in a way true because the Ottoman Empire, the Turkish Empire, controlled the land of Israel, and he had had some of his acquisitions um, requisitioned from the land of Israel. And the church claimed that since the Ottoman Empire is at war, whether a Cold War or otherwise, with Austria, um, the um, books would contain heresies against the Austrian Empire. And then there was the claim that, of course, some of the books would contain heresies against Christianity and that he would only be allowed to bring them into the city uh, if there would be scrutiny. 
and Rav Oppenheim understood that some of his books and manuscripts would be confiscated and never seen again. Uh, some would be mutilated, and therefore he left them in Hanover, and he would actually never get to use his collection again during his lifetime. Um, others uh, perused through his library when they visited the, the location, uh, but he was never reunited with his books because of censorship. That's how intrusive it was. And censorship also played a role in the most bizarre incident in his life and his greatest struggle, uh, bearing in mind that this was a person who was not only the chief rabbi of Prague, but eventually became the chief rabbi of all of Bohemia, a person who was respected throughout Europe for his rabbinic knowledge and also for his uh, charitable work. So this is a very well-known figure, um, but he was hounded, um, as we will hear. The story starts in the land of Israel, where over a period of years, in fact, over a number of decades, Rabbi Oppenheim had created close connections with the Jewish community, which at the time was still quite small. It would only be the mid-1800s uh, when the Jews in Israel would constitute a larger presence in any of the cities in which they lived. But at the time, uh, there were a few thousand, no more. And uh, particularly the Jews of Jerusalem had benefited from the support of Rabbi Oppenheim, both in advice and financially. When the rabbi of the Jerusalem community died in 1699, <coughs> Rabbi Oppenheim was offered to become the rabbi of the community um, and potentially, uh, in a way, chief rabbi of Israel, I guess. He uh, declined, he turned the offer down, given uh, his position in Prague at the time, uh, or, uh, when he, he had already been elected to become the, the rabbi of Prague, even though he didn't take up the position yet. And uh, the city uh, understood, but they sent him a uh, formal document of uh, endorsement to uh, to the post, which was followed by another letter in the summer of 1707, which awarded him the honorary title of Nasi, of Prince of Eretz Israel, of the land of Israel. Now, rabbis were asked from time to time to write um, approbations, uh, almost introductions to a book, to a sefer, called a Haskamah in Hebrew, and Rabbi Oppenheim was no exception in this. And um, when writing these approbations, which sometimes tended to be quite uh, flowery, he would make occasional use of his title as Rabbi of Prague, and occasionally even mentioning Nasi of Jerusalem, um, although it was absolutely clear to anyone with an understanding of during the 1700s that this had no authority or meaning. It was simply an honorific, but um, in an approbation, it would uh, sound as if it was doing a better job. 
However, if one were to read this title of Nasi of Jerusalem or of the land of Israel out of context and translate it into German, it could take on subversive associations because the Habsburg emperor, whose headquarters was in Vienna and who very much controlled Prague at the time, the emperor held the title King of Jerusalem. And it would therefore seem to be an affront to the emperor that somebody else was a pretender to the throne. Now, of course, it has to be understood that Nasi is a religious, not a political title. And anyway, no non-Jew was ever going to read a Hebrew approbation to a Sefer. So people felt relatively safe in um, allowing these approbations to appear in print. That was where the story starts. The next link in the chain is a Jew by the name of Jacob Toff, who in uh, living in Eretz Israel, he lent money to the struggling Ashkenazi Jewish community of Jerusalem. And he was provided by them with the names of various guarantors who would uh, pay off these debts. And one of those names was Rabbi Oppenheim. So this Jacob Toff travelled to a number of European cities to collect his loan because the Jerusalem Ashkenazi community was extremely poor and they couldn't pay up. And this Toff arrives in Prague in 1714, 12 years after Rabbi Oppenheim became the rabbi there. And Rabbi Oppenheim offered to pay three quarters of the outstanding debt. But he was not prepared to pay any of Toff's um, claimed travel expenses. But this was unacceptable to Toff, who had been hoping to capitalise on his loan and make money off it. So he was not a happy bunny. That's the second part of the story. Now we have the third link of this uh, improbable chain. Giorgio Diodato. Diodato opened the first coffee house in Prague, and in his shop, um, students of the university, or merchants, or traders, or Jews, could congregate and, I guess, relax, um, but they would also be able to peruse the collection of literature which Diodato left lying around quite deliberately. One of them was a book called foundations of Christianity, what Christians do and don't believe, written by a Jesuit professor in Prague. But the interesting thing about this book, Foundations of Christianity, is that it was printed in Yiddish and German. The author was an individual whose surname was Hasselbauer, and he was a Christian missionary. In fact, so was Diodato. So uh, we now have three links to the chain. We have Rabbi Oppenheim, who wrote these approbations using the title Prince of Jerusalem. We have Toff, who is in Prague, wanting money from Rabbi Oppenheim. And we have Diodato, a missionary. And um, they, these last two, Diodato and Toff, um, will join up and pursue Rabbi Oppenheim 
because each having uh, their own initial different motivations, um, each wanted him um, to be brought to court in one case for financial reasons and in one case for religious reasons. But there was an outbreak of, of uh, plague in the city, and Rav Oppenheim fled to Vienna, the imperial capital for safety. Toff pursues him there, and while he is there, this is the Jew Toff from the land of Israel, he um, meets a former rabbi who had converted to Catholicism in 1703 for reasons which are unclear, and he somehow convinces Toff of the superiority of Christianity. This story just gets crazier and crazier, and Toff now decides to be baptized, or maybe he also felt that if he's baptized, he has more likelihood of winning his court case against a Jew. So we now have uh, these two people, Toff and Diodato, who started out with different motivations for pursuing Rabbi Oppenheim, now having exactly the same motivation, which is religious. And they go to court. And initially, it is resolved in favour of Rabbi Oppenheim in July 1718. But Diodato and Toff initiated a series of appeals. And ultimately, they get the ear, the ear of the emperor. And on the 26th of September of 1718, Charles VI, the Habsburg emperor, dispatched a commission to investigate these alleged crimes of les majestés, possibly of treason, against Rabbi Oppenheim for the use of titles um, which seemed to directly be an attack on the Habsburg Empire. So um, the question that needed to be ascertained was how far this title actually went. What did it mean? Uh, did Rabbi Oppenheim himself believe himself to be the um, king of Jerusalem? But secondly, um, whether the funds that Rabbi Oppenheim gathered on behalf of the Jews of Jerusalem um, constituted proof of his standing as the prince of Jerusalem, albeit um, living a thousand miles away from the land of Israel. Um, and therefore, uh, the export of monies out of Christendom to the Turkish Empire was a betrayal of the loyalty that the chief rabbi owed his own country and sovereign. Um, so you have these two charges, you know, to what degree is King of Jerusalem a uh, political title? And to what degree does the sending of money uh, under his auspices to the land of Israel constitute uh, aiding and abetting financially the Ottoman enemy? And then there was a third charge, a religious charge, that the title Prince of Jerusalem implies that the true Messiah has not yet come. And that is an attack against the basic beliefs of Christianity. So it's now an accusation of heresy 
And these charges and these um, scurrilous attacks uh, proved themselves to be very real. And Rabbi Oppenheim is now cross-examined in court. And this Professor Hasselbauer, who had initially um, translated the work into Yiddish about what Christians actually believe, he appears as an expert witness. And the commission will rule in January 1723 uh, that um, the serious charges were valid. And as a result, the monarch now issues two edicts. First of all, he is forbidden, Rabbi Oppenheim is forbidden from now onwards to use that title ever again, not only going forwards, but any Hebrew book that had his title needed now to be given to the censors, uh, because uh, once his title in those books are suspect, so are the works themselves, and he will now have to uh, justify all that he has done until this point in time. And that means that um, he is um, subject to the uh, uh, church's direct control. He would also be forbidden for, from giving any approbations to any books on any level, even omitting his title, for the next decade. And no monies could be forwarded to the Ottoman Empire, to the Jews of Israel, for whatever reason whatsoever. And as far as Jewish books in Bohemia were concerned in general, the Dominicans were then given sweeping powers over the printing and content of Jewish books for the remainder of that century. We will come back with more in a moment. This is History for the Curious with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch. Welcome back to History for the Curious, which forms part of the History for the Curious podcast, which is available on all streaming media. We were talking about Rabdovid Oppenheim and the results of censorship, how the church was able to control what he could and could not write and do, and how, as a result, his library was taken or preventatively um, parked in his father-in-law's house in Hanover in 1702, and he was never to be able to make use of it again during his lifetime. Now, the question is, what happens to his library? So, interestingly, um, after he passes away, um, and in fact his son passed away within the space of three years of uh, his uh, death, um, his daughter fell on hard times and actually tried to sell the collection. But despite repeated inventories and uh, new catalogues in Hebrew, German and Latin, the uh, volumes languished in uh, 28 sealed crates. It was put up for sale in 1764 and again in 1826. And at that time, they had sold off a little bit of the uh, collection. 
and they now had 780 manuscripts and 4,200 books, and it was estimated to be worth £22,000. That's in the 1800s, uh, to which you would have to add uh, quite a number of zeros to get its value in today's world. Um, but nevertheless, it didn't find any buyers. And ultimately, it was a library in the United Kingdom who were able to put up some sort of funds for it, nowhere near the asking price. And this was the Bodleian Library in Oxford, which has an important collection of Jewish manuscripts and books, especially of early printed works, uh, of which the latter, a significant portion, um, definitely of the initial collection, came to Oxford when they purchased the entire library of Rabbi David Oppenheim um, for about £2,000. Um, and that's the sum which any single volume within the collection would fetch nowadays. Um, so it passed from Germany to England and from uh, Jewish hands to non-Jewish hands. Um, but in many ways, this circumstance was actually fortunate because as a result, it escaped the burning of Hebrew books in Prague in 1714 by the Dominican censors and the outbreak of fire in Prague in 1754, which destroyed most of the Jewish quarter. Um, and uh, obviously it escaped the fate of many European libraries during the Holocaust. Um, perhaps one last uh, word about Rav Oppenheim. He was buried in Prague's old cemetery, where famously the Maharal and others are. And in recent years, uh, it has become an inaccessible part of the Jewish cemetery because most of it is roped off um, and you can only sort of follow the normal path, especially with a larger group. But the, um, the gravestone uh, is still there and uh, I have managed to take um, smaller groups to go and see it. In fact, I'm on my way to Prague in about 10 days time. Um, and we will see if we can gain access to it. Um, so he is buried in the cemetery there, and his book collection, meanwhile, resides in Oxford. Um, but a word um, about the Dominican censors in Prague, because they did not give up their efforts uh, with their success over Rabbi David Oppenheim. If anything, they were um, emboldened as a result and in fact, um, in the first few decades of the 1700s, um, there was an edict which was um, signed by the emperor, which required every single Jewish book in all of Bohemia to be brought to the Prague Town Hall for inspection. And anyone failing to comply with this demand uh, within six weeks, would have all of their books permanently confiscated. You know, we normally link these type of activities with the Nazis, but it was actually well uh, and alive, unfortunately, through the church censorship uh, centuries earlier.
And the question then developed uh, within the Jewish communities, is it better to hide some of the books and risk discovery um, and immediate loss? Um, or was it better to hand in the books and attempt to uh, bribe or uh, somehow lessen the severity of the edict? Of course, we have to understand that this included manuscripts, handwritten, which were on occasion hundreds of years old of uh, works that had not yet been printed. Um, and if these were censored and destroyed or permanently confiscated, then this work would be lost to the Jewish people forever. And therefore, uh, in different towns, in different places, they took a um, different uh, views on what is the best way forward. Um, and in fact, the the amount of books that were deposited was so large that almost no copies of the Talmud could be found in Bohemia between 1715 and 1725, um, even in a place as large as Prague, um, a city which had many um, students of Torah and Talmud, um, they uh, attempted to um, ameliorate the severity of the decree, uh, but uh, very little quarter was given to them. And as a result, um, the, um, the state of uh, Jewish books uh, was perilous. In fact, um, in Prague, uh, to this day, the building where these works were deposited um, still stands, and um, it is a, um, a historical monument to what the Jews had to go through at the time. We will now take a break. This is History for the Curious with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch. And we are back live with you. Uh, for the uh, last part of today's show. And uh, we had been talking about censorship, particularly um, in Prague in the 18th century. Um, the results of censorship um, were that Jews in the Christian countries often did not possess certain books or certain parts of books that Jews in Muslim countries had access to, where censorship, where it existed, uh, was a much lighter touch than was the case in Europe. Um, now, in uh, later centuries, particularly in the 19th century, uh, in the Russian Tsarist Empire, which controlled not just Russia itself, but also what today would be Ukraine, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, um, probably two thirds to three quarters of uh, Poland, um, it's uh, Belarus. Um, the Tsarist Empire operated a very harsh censorship. Um, at one stage, after a showcase trial, the Tsar actually um, closed down all of the printing houses um, that featured throughout his empire. 
Jewish printing houses and only allowed two to survive, one in Vilna and one in Zhitomir. And um, as a result, um, the Jews um, were uh, left trying to circumvent this um, new assault um, on their books, this new form of censorship. And one of the ways they did so um, was by um, having fake front pages to their books, meaning since the Tsar's decrees started at a particular given date in the 19th century, if they could um, print a book and put on the front page that this had been printed in the late um, 1700s, um, then it was a pre-censorship date. And therefore, it was allowed to be possessed and to be read and studied and taught. Uh, this is one of the ways uh, they got around it. One of the most bizarre incidents of censorship that uh, the Russians enforced at one stage, they refused to allow any type of monies or coinage to be um, discussed except the Russian coin system, which meant that any values of monies that were described in any book would have to then be uh, valued instead in Jewish, in, in, sorry, in, in, in Russian currency at the time. And uh, one of the works censored as a result was a Haggadah. At the very end of the Haggadah, we have a very famous song, the Chad Gadya, uh, the, the lamb, uh, that the father buys, betray Zuzi for two Zuz. Zuz is a coin of the Talmud, um, a coin of the Middle East of 2000 years ago. Um, but the Russians refused to song, the, the song to stand as it was and asked instead that it be changed to Kopex. And therefore, the Chad Gadya in uh, Russian printed Haggadahs at one particular moment um, had the line Chad Gadya, the Zabin Abba, which my father bought, Beshloshim Kopex. Uh, this is one of the more bizarre outcomes of censorship. So we have been discussing censorship. We've been discussing the difficulties that Jews had within printing. Um, and in fact, um, in the History for the Curious podcast, we are in the middle of a four part series on Jewish printing. Uh, three parts have already appeared, and the fourth will appear, God willing, later this week, uh, which will further broaden the topics that we've discussed today and will give an insight into one of the difficulties that um, Jews faced at the time um, when having to um, not only navigate the minefield of their lack of rights, of the um, difficulties that they had um, when living as a minority 
in a majority host country, uh, which was not theirs. Uh, but beyond that, um, they had um, other unforeseen difficulties, which are not normally considered, such as uh, censorship um, and such as the fact that um, they were completely subject to um, the um, the input of uh, the authorities as to what they could and could not write, what they could and could not produce in writing. Um, now, uh, perhaps one last point, which we will um, end on um, when discussing books, uh, we need to see within the creation of literature something which has always been at the heart of Jewish education. Um, it's uh, something that uh, p possibly distinguishes often um, Jews around the world, Jews who uh, own a library of their own. Um, it is quite natural to have books, to own books, to read books. It's something that has accompanied us throughout the centuries, um, censorship notwithstanding. I leave you there with this week's talk on censorship for history for the curious.